Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good, man. It's uh, good to be back here this morning. I uh, really uh, missed you all um, on our sabbatical. Was thankful for the time I got this summer with family. It was a good time of uh, rest and some um, just uh, refocus and, and refreshment for sure. Um, but so glad to be here. Missed all of you. Uh, do me a favor. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to start right at the beginning this morning, Genesis 1. And um, if you've been with us last week, you know that we are in the second week of a series that I'm so excited about. And this series is called Christian Worldview. And here's why I'm pumped about this series. And I don't know um, if the the young, cool kids still do this or not, but when I was in high school, um, this would happen. I'm sure some of you might be familiar with this. When like a couple started to like each other right? They would, you know, a guy would have eyes on a girl or a girl would have eyes on a guy and they would, you know, um, start awkwardly like, you know, hey, let's study together, right? None of them, neither of them want to study, but that was just a way to be by each other. Then they might go and have a, a date or they might start texting and they're kind of a relationship growing. But after like two or three mo- like dates, there's this crisis moment in every relationship and it's called the DTR, You know what I'm talking about? There's this moment where you have to define the relationship. And it was common when I was in high school and college, like, man, I'm going to have the DTR with this girl. And sometimes that would go great. Sometimes that would go horrible. Sometimes, like, I had friends that could just never get the courage to have conversation and the relationship would just fizzle out. And I'm like, well, that's because you're an idiot, right? You didn't have the the ability to, 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 to ask the hard question. Well, this series in so many ways is really a DTR. We're defining the relationship when it comes to Christianity. What is it that we are all about? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to hold a Christian worldview? How do we view ourselves? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about the church? Where we're saying, all right, who are we? What do we believe and how does it change us to be Christians. So here would be my encouragement to you. Um, This series, for whatever reason, if you can't get to church on Sunday, um, make sure you get online and watch the message because these messages are going to build on one another. Last week, we talked about who God is. And we saw that God is the rock from Isaiah that we build our lives on, that God is supreme. He is an authority. He is the rock. Everything begins with him, starts with him, revolves around him. Now, this week, we're going to change, and we're going to look at what does a Christian worldview hold about us, about man? How do we view ourselves within the framework of a Christian worldview? And one of the things that we're going to be doing often throughout this series is contrasting a Christian worldview with the worldview of our culture, right? Because we live in a country and in a culture that holds a different set of values and beliefs and worldview than the Christian worldview. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the cultural worldview that is predominant in our country has a name. And the name for it is secular humanism. We live in a country that has a secular humanist worldview, and that has different values, it has different beliefs, it has different um, origins of man than a Christian worldview does, and in many ways, we are being discipled by this worldview every single day. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a couple of minutes, and I want to talk about what is secular humanism, and how does it view man compared to what the Bible says or what a Christian worldview would hold about 
man. So here's the first thing I want you to see if you're taking notes. Is the, uh, actually, this isn't in the notes quite yet, but this is the definition of secular humanism. It's this. It's the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief in God. This is the primary worldview of our culture, that man is capable of morality and complete self-fulfillment without the belief in God. And um, you can go different places online as you research secular humanism, and you can find a bunch of different definitions. They're all very similar to this, but what's interesting is in every definition that I could find of secular humanism, there is the explicit statement that we don't believe in God. Secular humanism is an anti-God worldview, and um, in its very essence, it believes that truth is determined by what we can observe in science and through human reason, that, that the highest levels of truth are what man can find out through our minds or through what we can observe in science. We are the highest authority. It is up to us to define morality and what is right and wrong. We have the ability and it is up to us to create our best possible world and life. And this life is all we have. So let's make this world kind and as great as we possibly can. Okay, you also have to understand that secular humanism is an inherently arrogant um, worldview. And here's what I mean. What, what secular humanism says is that the belief in God was really, really great for simpler ages and simpler times. And, and back then, you know, when, when we didn't know what we know now, belief in God made sense. But now that we have progressed, now that we're smarter, now that technology has advanced, now that we are no more and basically no longer cavemen, we don't need to believe in God. We can move past this archaic mindset. In the inherent worldview of secular humanism is in its fabric that anyone who would believe in a deity is backwards, left behind, and dumb. It's an inherently arrogant point of view. And when it comes to who we are as humans, the Christian worldview is very, very different from the worldview of secular humanism. And this is why I want us to start in Genesis 1 when God created man. Look at Genesis 1 starting at verse 26. Here's what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So what I want to do is just from these three verses, I want to point out three distinct differences that a Christian worldview has in compared to secular humanism. Here's the first According to secular humanism, man is fiercely autonomous. The Christian worldview would say that man is created, dependent, and accountable. Man is created, dependent, and accountable. So for the humanist worldview, there is no God. You are the result of chance and evolution, and you are autonomous and free to determine what your purpose is what's best for you, how to live, what to pursue, all of this you get to decide and create for yourself. As long as you don't harm others or infringe on their autonomy, you don't answer to anyone. Just try to be nice, don't be a jerk, and you're kind of free to do whatever you want. Why can't we all just get along? 
You're not accountable to anyone. There is no God. You're here just because you're here. Let's make the best out of life. The Christian worldview is very different. The Christian, Christian worldview believes that you were created by God. You see it in verse 27 right there. God created man in his own image. And because we're created by God, that means that we are dependent on God. That God not only created the world, he sustains the world. We exist because of him. Every day that we live, every breath that we breathe is a gift given to us by our creator. That there is a supernatural God who is so much greater and bigger than our minds can comprehend. And he is holding all things together by the word of his power. That we're not autonomous, that we're not free, that we are created dependent. And then here's the third thing that we are accountable to this God. And we see it right here in verse 28. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God not only creates us, but he gives us responsibility. Right? Hey, you need to go subdue the earth. You need to have dominion over it. These other animals and things on the earth, I've given you authority over those things. You need to steward and build up my creation. And if you read Genesis 2, you see Adam immediately begins. He gives all of the animals names and he works in the garden and he is given tasks and responsibilities that he is accountable to God for. And this idea that we are somehow independent from God that we are autonomous to do as we please has not only never been true, but it's an attitude that is sinful and offensive towards God. Okay, but let's be honest. Here's our problem. Isn't the attitude that we're autonomous and we can do what we want, isn't that our default heart position? Like, here's a better way to say it. We don't have to work very hard to be self-absorbed, do we? Like, being self-absorbed comes easy. You know this if you have kids. Um, so here's a question. How many of you attended a children's soccer game yesterday? Let me see hands, right? A lot of us. It should be like a national holiday in the Tri-Cities, Michigan, the first weekend of soccer. I was at four yesterday. That's how my Saturday went. And our first game was Judah's game. And he's six years old. The game was at 8.30, um, but we had to be there at 8 because there's pictures before the first game because how could we survive without soccer pictures, right? Those are a necessity to life. So here's what that meant. That meant that we had to get up at 7, that the other kids in the family, Nora and Ashley, my daughters and Bo, they couldn't sleep in on a Saturday. They had to get up early. We had to get to the field early. We sat around and waited while he took pictures. And then at 8.30, not only was our family there, but both sets of grandparents came. And I don't know if you know this or not, but six-year-old soccer is not overly high-level competition. It's not that fun or entertaining to watch. They were there because they loved Judah. And so Judah has his own cheering section, and we're making a big deal, and the game went well, and so he was happy. And after the game, we're all walking back to the car together. And uh, Mary's folks, Randy and Lori, they were going to come to Bo's game later that afternoon at 2.45, and um, Mary and her mom, Lori, were talking, and Lori was like, well, hey, can I take the, your girls over and just spend the day with them, and then we can drop them back off when we come to Bo's game? And the girls wanted to go, and Mary's like, oh, that'd be an awesome idea. And I don't know if this might shock you or not, but Judah's attitude in that moment when he heard that his sisters were going to grandma's, but he had to stay with mom and dad, his attitude was not, you know what? I'm so thankful for my sisters and that they got up early to go to my soccer game, and I'm so happy for them that they get one-on-one -on -one time with grandma and grandpa. That wasn't his attitude. Guess what it was? It was tears. 
It was meltdown. It was, how come they get to go and I don't get to go and I want to go to grandma and grandpa's and this isn't fair. And it's like, Judah, literally everything today up to this point has centered around you, right? The world doesn't revolve around you. Now, to be transparent, he's the baby in the family, and he's got beautiful little eyes, and he won. Um, we gave in. We punted. It was not my best parenting moment, but he hung out with grandma and grandpa, too, until Bo's game. Um, the kid just looks so much like his mom. It's really difficult to say no to him. Um, but I tell you what, our default is to want to be consumed and absorbed about us. Right? I tell my boys all the time, world doesn't revolve around you world doesn't revolve around you, but here's the truth. If their daddy was honest, oftentimes I want the world to revolve around me. But a Christian worldview says it can't because we were created by God and we are dependent and accountable to him to bring him glory. Isaiah 43 says that we were created for the glory of God. We weren't created for ourselves. Okay, here's the second thing I want you to see. You see, secular humanism believes that there is limited value in human life, and the Christian worldview believes that there is eternal value in human life. The difference here has everything to do with the phrase created in the image of God. Look at verse 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So here's a question. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Right? That doesn't mean that, that we are all powerful like God is. It doesn't mean that we can be everywhere at once like God is. It doesn't mean that we um, know everything like God does. Here's what it means. It means that you and I have been given an eternal soul. That there is something distinct in us that is different than the rest of creation. That our souls are eternal and we have the ability to know, love, and worship our creator. This idea of being created in the image of God, it doesn't have to do with how we look or, 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 or about our brains. It has everything to do with our eternal soul that in every human is this eternal question that we feel like we have to answer. It's because we've been created by an eternal God who we long to have relationship with. We are distinct and different from the rest of creation. Here's what you need to understand. Humanism has to reject this because they reject the spiritual and the eternal. In fact, there's a very famous humanist phrase that's been adopted by PETA and other animal rights activist groups. It's this. The phrase is, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. I'm going to say that again. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. And it's, listen, we're just the next step on the evolutionary chain. But there is nothing inherently different, precious, or special about humans than would be from any other animal. So I saw this phrase online and I kind of jumped down the rabbit hole. And, and I started to read articles by people who believe this. And I, I came upon an article by someone who was making this argument. They're like, you know, humans are so arrogant to believe that we're better than animals. And this was their proof. They're like, think about it. They're like, how many words in dog language do you know? And yet your dog can understand dozens of words that you say. So we think we're smarter and better than dogs, but really dogs are more intelligent and can understand more of our language than we can of theirs. And I was reading it and I was like, here's my problem with that line of logic. My dog also routinely eats other dogs' poop and doesn't even feel bad about it. And my dog believes that when a firework goes off, the world is literally ending. Like, I'm just not sure I can buy what you're selling there. 
But the line of reason is we are no different. We are just another animal. There is nothing distinctly valuable or eternally valuable about us. Humanism believes that your value comes from what kind of person you are, how you treat and influence others, what you accomplish, how you look. There's lots of things, the legacy you leave. There's lots of things that can determine your value, but it's up to you. You're not created with an eternal value. So here's what I would say. If you're here and you're just kind of in a bad place and not feeling great about life, can I give you some good news and encourage you and just let you know I promise you you're more valuable than your hamster? Right? Doesn't you feel loved by that, just hearing that, right? Like, no, 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 the Christian worldview says, no, no, no. We are set apart, we're distinct from the rest of creation because we've been created in the image of our creator. Okay, so I need to pause here for a moment. Um, One of the things that happens, I've been pastoring at this church now for almost 11 years. It's almost our 11-year anniversary. And so I've been through um, a couple election cycles. And what happens every about four years when elections for our country are happening, um, I will often get the question, or maybe sometimes when someone's really worked up, even the accusation, hey, why don't you speak on social issues more? Why don't you tell people who to vote for? Why, why, why don't you speak more on the issues of today? Why don't, why don't you talk about the, 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 the important issues in our country? And when people ask that, I explain, listen, um, we have always said that we are a vertical church, that our primary, primary, prim, primarily, there it is, there's the word, our primary hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We care about our country, we love about our country, but our hope is not in our country, and we're not going to change our ministry model just because it's election season. We're going to preach God's word, and when God's word dictates that we speak on social issues, we'll speak about them boldly, but we're not going to, to change just because of what season it is in our country's political history. Most of the time when people ask me that and I give that answer, they're like, oh, that's awesome. That makes total sense. Thank you for for giving me that answer. Sometimes when I give that answer, people say that I'm a coward and 98% of the world's problems are my fault, right? You win some, you lose some. It's okay. I understand how it goes. But we've always kind of held the position that when God's word demands that we speak on it, we're going to speak on it boldly, but we're not going to change because of what's happening culturally. Well, here's the thing. This is one of these passages that if I'm not going to be a hypocrite, but if I'm going to be a man of my word, I I need to take a moment and address a social issue that is deeply connected to this issue of being created in the image of God, and that is the issue of abortion. And church, what I want you to see is, is the reason that abortion is such a divisive and deeply entrenched battle in our country's political landscape is because it is the convergence of these two worldviews head on. Here's what I mean. There are millions of people in our country who hold a, human, a humanist worldview. There is no God. There is no creator. There is no eternal value in human life. I am autonomous and primarily responsible for myself. I have the freedom to choose what is best for me, my body, my choice. And church, I want you to see this. If if that's your worldview, being pro-choice is absolutely logical and it makes a lot of sense. I understand that position based on the secular humanist worldview. The problem is, is it is a worldview that is deeply incompatible with a Christian worldview. Right? The Christian worldview, millions of people hold this worldview in our country that we are created by God, that all human life, born or unborn, has eternal value, 
and that God is intimately involved in our formation from the womb. Like this is one of the amazing things of scripture that I don't even fully understand, but Isaiah 44, 24 makes it very clear. We looked at this last week. It says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. That somehow in the formation in our mother's womb, God was involved in that process, that he created us from the womb, that before the foundations of the world were laid, God knew who we were, that God created us individually. Here's what that means. That means that there's no surprises in this room. There's no accidents in this room. None of you are the result of an extra glass of red wine, I promise you but that we are called by God, formed by God, created by God. And can I just say this? There is a level of mystery in this that I don't even fully understand. Like if you have been here for any length of time, you know that a big part of Mary and I's journey together as a couple was we've suffered a couple miscarriages. Before we had our identical twins and then after we had our twins, we've had miscarriages. And um, so here's what I know from scripture that those unborn children created in the image of God. Their lives have eternal value. They never made it to delivery. What does that mean for their eternal destiny or how all of that works? I don't know. There's mystery there. I think there's a really, really good chance that when I get to heaven one day, um, standing next to Jesus are going to be two kids of mine that I never got to meet but got to grow up with Jesus. And I can like barely even think about that without getting choked up and that bringing tears to my eyes. Like that makes me long for that day more. But here's what I know. If that's not how that works, if that's not what God's ultimate plan is, I'm not going to be disappointed in heaven. None of us are. My hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has already proven that he loves me so much in what he's done in Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust him with all of the things I don't know. But there's a mystery there that's pretty special and amazing. But the other thing the Christian worldview believes is that we don't have ultimate authority over autonomy or autonomy over our own bodies. We submit everything to God, including our own bodies. So according to a Christian worldview that holds that we are created in the image of God, choosing to end an unborn life is the taking of a life and a sinful offense against our creator. Okay, now, please hear me. Let me shepherd your hearts for a moment because I want to make something very clear. I'm not a politician, I'm a pastor. I'm not trying to win any arguments, I'm trying to love people. And, and, and here's what I know, I understand the statistics, I understand how things work, that in a room this size, I am undoubtedly speaking to both men and women in this room who have made the choice in their past to have an abortion. And, and I wanna say some things uh, about that. First of all, is abortion an unforgivable sin or an unpardonable sin? Absolutely not. Will it require that you wear a scarlet letter of shame for the rest of your life? No, never. Does it make you worse or more of a sinner than anyone here? No, all of us stand guilty and naked and condemned before God over our sin and rebellion. And everyone in here is equally desperate for the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives. No one stands here above anyone else in this room. Does it disqualify you from experiencing the life, forgiveness, joy, and freedom that God wants for you? Absolutely not. It doesn't. And so here's the thing with all types of sin. This, this works for all of us. When we sin, there is this temptation to hide and to isolate ourselves 
and to keep that thing hidden. And the problem is, is when we allow ourselves to do that with sin, then shame and fear always have dominion over our lives. And in the 11 years as a church that, that we have ministered to this community, we have walked with hundreds of women who have this as part of their past and they have found forgiveness and healing and victory and their identity is not a past sin. It is who they are in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have a ministry in our church called Healing Hearts that is dedicated to walking with women who have made the choice in their past to have an abortion. Because oftentimes there's a lot of guilt and shame and pain there that we want to put under the lens of the gospel and see that you are loved and you are forgiven by Jesus Christ because we all are. Amen? Amen. I hope you hear my heart there. This is a place where you are loved because we are all loved and forgiven by God. Okay, here's the third thing you need to see. Is that in secular humanism, identity, truth, and purpose are fluid. But in a Christian worldview... These things are fixed. And, and here's what that means. One of the interesting things about secular humanism is nothing is forever. Nothing is certain. Nothing is going to stay the same. And what they say is, is well, what was true a thousand years ago wasn't true 500 years ago. And what was true 100 years ago isn't necessarily true today. And what's going to be true in 200 years from now might be very, very different than what's true today. Everything's changing. It's like, well, if we discover more, if we can find more reasoning, like, like, like nothing is secure. Nothing is under, um, you know, nothing is outside of the realm of changing. The Christian worldview is different. The Christian worldview says that who God is, like we saw last week, he's a rock. He does not change. God's word is true. It was true 2,000 years ago. It was true 1,000 years ago. It's true today. It will be true in 2 million years from now. And that our identity, who we are in Christ, cannot be taken away from us. And our purpose, which is to know, love, and glorify God, will not change. There is a stability in the Christian worldview that you do not get in secular humanism. And here's what's cool. This is the reason why Christian community can be such a beautiful thing. Because it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your past story is. All of us share the same identity. All of us share the same goal. We want to make much of Jesus Christ. All of us share the same source of truth. So when we gather together, we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. We submit ourselves to the word of God and we love and we encourage each other and we're for each other because these things do not change. Here's what I want you to see, church. I want you to see that the lens with which we as Christians view the world and the lens that our culture does in so many ways are, are against each other and, and very, very different. And so what I want to do now is I want to change the focus from who we are as created beings to primarily who are we called as followers of Christ. Because as Christians, we have an even deeper identity that's bigger than just Genesis 1. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter 2. We're going to spend the rest of our time in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and just a little bit of background. Peter, he was like the leader of the disciples. He was one of the closest with Jesus. He was in the inner circle. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter took control of the Jerusalem church. 
and, and he was in charge of all of the Christians who were Jewish. And what happened is, is because of persecution under the Roman Empire, oh, many, many Jewish Christians had to scatter. They had to leave their families. They were disowned by them. They were under persecution from Rome. Life was really, really difficult. So first Peter, Peter is writing a letter to churches and followers of Jesus spread throughout the Roman Empire who are hiding and who are exiled and are facing severe persecution. And he's encouraging them to not give up and to remember who they are in Christ. Look what he says in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in these two verses, Peter is reminding the followers of Jesus living in exile of four things that's true about their identity in Christ that cannot be taken away. Here's the first. The first thing we need to see is that we are set apart by God. That part of who we are as Christians is we are people who are set apart. Do you see it right there in verse 9? He says that you are um, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He says that, that you are someone called by God that is set apart from the rest of the world. Peter is saying that the followers of Christ have been called by God. It's the same thing Paul is referring to in Ephesians 2 when he writes this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. See what's happening there? What Peter and Paul are both saying is that, listen, we were no different than everyone else. That we were following our own passions, that we were being led by the flesh, that we were following the spirit of the culture, of the age, that we were believing and thinking, being consumed with ourselves like everyone else. But that God did a work supernaturally and miraculously in our heart that opened our eyes to the reality of God, who Jesus Christ was, and he offered us salvation. Okay, you need to understand what that means is... The reason you believe in Christ. The reason that when I talk about the belief that there could be no God and that God's not real, the thing in your mind that's like, that's crazy. You have that not because you're smarter or more intelligent or more moral or better than anyone else. You've been given that by God. That God set us apart. He opened our eyes to the truth. He gave us his spirit, which allows us to have relationship with God. The reason we reject secular humanism, it's not because we're smarter or better, but because of the work that God did in revealing himself to us. All right, so church, look here. Here's what that means. Don't be offended by the fact that people who don't know the Lord think differently than you. Like, can we make fun of ourselves for a second really quick? Like, don't Christians have a unique ability to be shocked and horrified that people who don't know and love Jesus live and act like they don't know and love Jesus? We're like, oh my gosh, how can that possibly be? 
It's like, because they don't know the Lord. And, and rather, so often, rather than loving and rather than engaging with and rather than being a light for the gospel, we get defensive, we get angry, and we're like, no, no, I want your life to look like mine before you believe what I believe and then are stunned that that doesn't go well. Uh, back in June, um, my wife and kids, we went to Florida for a couple weeks and uh, we spent time with some family down in Florida. And uh, they're cousins of mine who we love dearly, and uh, they don't know the Lord. They're close, but they're not followers of Jesus yet. So we go to Tampa, we hang out with them, we spend the night at their place, we have a great time. But here's the truth, when you talk to them, the way they think about the world is different, the way they spend their money is different, the way they view uh, what their goals are for their family and for their life are, completely different than ours. And I'm not going to get in fights and debates uh, about how they're choosing to organize their life. What I'm going to do is, is I'm going to talk a lot about the Lord. I'm going to talk about how we're thankful for what God's doing in our life and the life of our families, where we're going to do our best to love them and show Jesus Christ. And then we're praying that God opens their eyes and gives us opportunities to be a witness for him. It's not about winning arguments. It's about loving people and showing our hope is unmovable in Jesus Christ despite our circumstances. Hey, here's the second thing we see, and I love this. Peter's telling these people that we are in God's inner circle, that we are in God's inner circle. Look at verse 9 again. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And if you take notes in your Bible, underline or circle that phrase, a royal priesthood. Because to the audience that Peter is writing to, that would have been a huge deal. Like when they would have heard that they were a priesthood, their mouths would have dropped open. Here's why. Because in the nation of Israel, how things worked in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were God's people. But Israel had 12 tribes in it. And only one tribe got the right to be priests. And those were the Levites. And if you were a priest, you got to work in the temple. And the temple was where God's presence resided. So if you were a priest, you were like in the in crowd. You had special access to God. You could be closer physically to where God was. You had like these special privileges that no one else had. And once a year, the high priest would even enter into the presence of God and offer a sacrifice. Priests had special access. So what Peter's saying is, no, 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 it's not like that anymore. But all of us are now priests. We all have full and equal access to God because the Spirit of God now resides in our hearts, that our sin is forgiven. We're no longer separated by God from our sin because Jesus paid that debt, and we have full access to our Creator every single moment. That even right now, if you want to, you can tone me out and you can talk to God. Like, how amazing is that? Like, how often do we take prayer for granted in our life? And it's laborious and a chore when really what we're, God is saying is, is, I love you so much. I'm giving myself to you every single moment. We are in God's inner circle. There's no one that we have to go through. There's no test we have to pass, but that God resides in us. Okay, here's the third thing we see. Is that we are set on mission and accountable. That we are set on mission and accountable. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Do you see that? God is saying, I've saved you for a purpose. 
that you would declare the excellencies of the one who saved you, right? We have been saved that we might make much of God in our lives. All right, church, listen to me. I think so often when we think of salvation, we think about what we're saved from, right? Well, I'm saved from death. I'm saved from my sin. I'm saved from hell. And our salvation is everything that we don't have to experience because we have Jesus. But that's not how the Bible views it. The Bible views it that we are both saved from things, but we're also saved to things. That we were saved by God, for God, that we might glorify God. That's what it's all about. Look at 1 Peter 2.1. He says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Why does he call us to put those things away? Because all of those are going to tarnish our witness for God. He's saying, get rid of the things that are going to cause you not to bring the most possible glory to God in your life, that we've got to be at war of those things because our lives have a created purpose and we're held accountable for that. Do you know in Revelation it says that we will stand before the Lord and we will receive crowns for the good things and the way we've honored him and glorified him. We will receive rewards and crowns for for how we have lived and how we've honored the Lord. And then do you know what we do with those crowns? We get the honor of laying those at the feet of Jesus Christ because it's all about him and his goodness and his mercy and his power and everything good we do, we've received from Christ. But man, here's the thing. I want more crowns than anyone else. (laughs) I, I want to honor the Lord. I want in that moment to say, God, I spent myself for your glory and you are so worth it that I'm gonna give every crown that I can find. I might even steal Jason's crowns, right? Like I'll do whatever I can to get as many crowns to the feet of Jesus. But there is an accountability for how we've lived. So like in my life, like again, I mentioned it early, I'm in soccer season. Like I'm just in it. I was at four games yesterday. I've got a game after church today. And and, and so here's the thing. I'm not just there as a soccer dad. I'm there as someone who's going to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that I'm going to stop the game and bring my pulpit and bring my podium and start preaching? No, I don't think that would go well for me. But in how I interact with the other parents, the things I choose not to say at the ref, even though he might deserve it, my attitude and how I love my son, all of that is proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. How are you doing at that? Do the people you know, do the people you work with, do your neighbors Would they define your life as someone, man, they really love the Lord, and I don't necessarily agree with them, but they are just all in on Jesus, and they really want to honor him with their lives. It's our calling. Does that sound like you? And then here's the fourth thing, last thing. We are defined by Christ's victory and not our failures. We are defined by Christ's victory and not our failures. Look at verse 10. It says, once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, how did all of this happen? Right? Once we were just like everyone else, once we weren't part of God's family, once we were isolated from God and we were separated from God, how did that happen? How have we received God's mercy? How have we been adopted into God's family? It's because of Jesus Christ. That we are defined by what Jesus did for us, not our efforts, not our failures, not our past. 
And church, here's why we take a whole week to talk about what the Bible says about us as created people and followers of God. Look here, I need you to track with me here. We take a week to talk about this because you can't win a game that you don't know you're playing. Okay, let me flesh that out. So often in in our church's history, we've been discipling people or walking with people and and their lives are at a crisis point. Maybe it's a marriage thing, maybe it's a health thing, maybe it's a family thing. And and, and I'm like, okay, um, what's going on? And and it's like, well, you know, I, um, my marriage is falling apart and I got to fix that and I've got to become a better person and and I want to come to church and I I know I need that and and I just, I want to be a better person. And I just asked them the simple question, what's your purpose? What's the goal of your life? So often people can't give me an answer. And these are people that come to our services every weekend. These are people that grown up in the church. They don't know what they were created for. Well, how are you ever going to have success in life if you don't know what the goal is and what the purpose is? But here's the amazing thing. A Christian worldview gives us all of that. It says that we were created by God to worship, know, love, and glorify our creator. That we are deeply dependent on him that God will hold us accountable, that we're not autonomous and free to do whatever we want. But even in our sin and failures, that God has saved us, he's redeemed us, he has set us apart, he has called us to one another, he has given us a family, a church to love and build one another up. And so if I wake up every day and I'm like, all right, I know my created purpose and that's to glorify and honor the Lord, that's gonna impact how I interact with my kids, isn't it? That my job is just not to be a good dad, but it's a good dad that honors the Lord and points my kids towards Christ. That my job is not just to go around to work and be at the office, but that in how I interact with my coworkers and how I submit to the elders of our church and how I interact with all of you, that I glorify the Lord and I am patient and kind and not rude and not egocentric. And how I love my wife and how I spend my money and how I give my time There is a goal and a created purpose that I have that allows me to live out and build out the rest of my life. And church, here's the thing. If our identity is not rooted in a Christian worldview, there are so many things that will eat up your identity so fast. There's some of you in here that your identity is still your past. And whether that's past sin and failure that shame has a foothold in, or if your past is, man, those were the glory days. And those were things that that when times were great, and I wish I could get back to those days, and it's just looking back, wishing that you had something you didn't have. For some of you, it's your performance. You're the best student. You're the best mom. Your kids perform the best. For some of you, it's your position. It's how much money you make. It's what your job title is. Everything in this world wants part of our identity. And what the Christian worldview does is it gives us an anchor. It says, here's who we are in Christ. Here's who we are as people created by God. And these things do not change. So my question as we close is, is what is shaping and forming your life? Is it what God says you are? Is it what culture says you are? Or is it something altogether different? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for... um, I thank you for the fact that everyone in this room, you know intimately that you've created us, that you have been present 
with us every moment of our lives. God, I know every single day there are moments where I choose to make my life all about me, that I don't live for your glory. Continue to break me of those things. Forgive me for that. Would you help all of us in this room? We desperately want to be a people who glorify you, who love you, whose identity is deeply rooted in not what others say or what our culture says, but is defined by who you say we are. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.